Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Hi everyone and welcome back to the next episode of the Genomics Lab. So today we are speaking to Alex Andreas from the University of Essex. So we know her quite well, which is very exciting. Uh, so hi to Alex, thank you for joining us today. Um, would you just like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm Alex Andreas. I'm, I'm part of this uh, Centre for Doctoral Training in Biosocial Research. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my final year of uh, my PhD. Excellent. So, um, what is your actual PhD topic? Well, so my actual PhD topic, <laughs> what, um, how it's written down right now, is re-examining social differences in health right. by utilising an epigenetic biomarker of smoking. Okay. Uh, which we'll talk about, I imagine, later on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, could you tell us a little bit more about the the SOCV program? So the the program that you're on for your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's uh, funded by the ESRC and BBSRC. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite cool, actually, because it's an interdiscipl- interdisciplinary um, PhD. So it's basically combining the social science- sciences with uh, biology. Okay. So, and it's across three uh, universities. So obviously Essex is part of it, where I am and also Manchester and UCL. Okay. Yeah. So how does the programme work? Um, because as far as I'm aware, you're sort of on a, on a four-year, it's a four-year course, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think because obviously everybody is coming from such different backgrounds, the first year is is training. So they basically try and get everybody up to this, uh, a kind of basic standard knowledge of uh, social differences in health and uh, different kind of, biological mechanisms that we might be looking at um so for me for example I had to do two 10-week placements in my first year um one in psychology um I was looking at psychopathy and another one I was looking at um uh, differences in health by sexual orientation okay yeah so the first year they really try and put you outside your comfort zone yeah um, Yeah. basically and (laughs) And get you, give you experience for you know different subject areas. So that's what I was doing for the first year. And then you write up a uh, your project proposal proposal okay. effectively um, for the next few years. Interesting. So did you did you have to like sort of come up with the project idea yourself, or was I, I you got, sort of allocated projects? No. So you come up with the project complete uh, by yourself, but um, obviously you get help from the supervisors that you. Mm-hmm, yeah. That you pick so I got a lot of um input um from yeah my two supervisors and it kind of built on the work I was doing during my master's yeah okay well that's really interesting so it's you did your undergrad then your master's and then this four-year program yeah all at Essex yeah, <laughs> yeah. you just love Essex I just can't get enough <laughs> so what was your what was your master's research 
Um, so my master's research, um, it, I did a master's by dissertation and I was looking, it was kind of the start of me looking at these epigenetic differences okay. by smoking. Right, okay. And I, uh, I was using uh, kind of epigenome-wide association studies yep. mm -hmm. and things like that. Okay, um, that's really interesting. Cool. So how did you like, I guess, how did you come up with the um, project idea? So what made you sort of want to look into um, biomarkers of smoking? Well, okay, so if I'm being honest, it it wasn't necessarily that I was really interested in smoking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think the thing with smoking is that because it's so pervasive on your health and yeah. we kind of already knew that smoking was associated with these strong differences yeah. in DNA methylation, it basically opened up an avenue where I could really kind of develop my methods and start better understanding how to combine these massive mm -hmm. microarray data sets of epigenetic different uh, modifications mm -hmm. with these equally big yep. uh, social study data sets. So, so. Um, so yeah, that was kind of what I was really interested in. The, um, the method side of it, I guess. Yeah, the method yeah. side of it and learning a bit more about uh, how, how the social science of um, smoking plays into yeah. these biomarkers. So it's kind of a strategic decision, really. You wanted to look at kind of social and biological interactions and the methods and stuff, and smoking happened to be a really good way of, way of combining that. those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what was your undergrad in? Because I feel like if I ever have questions about, I guess, like more the social aspects of my work, I feel like you're a really great person to talk to about that. And you, I feel like you always can look at things from like a different perspective. So your undergrad, as far as I'm aware, wasn't social science, was it? No, not at all. I think um, most of my social science knowledge has come from the last few years, um, mm -hmm. especially being around a lot of social scientists. So I'm actually one of the few people that have come from a biological background onto yeah. my um, training programme. Mm -hmm. So my undergrad was in genetics um, at Essex, okay, um, which is obviously almost completely biological. But yeah, yeah. But it's interesting actually because I suppose the thing with genetics is that uh, the history of genetics is, you know, almost controversial in a way sometimes. Yeah. So it, mm -hmm. it actually makes sense for you to be thinking about. Um, social factors when you're thinking uh, about genetics. I think as well genetics is such a I'm trying to think of the way to say this without sounding really stupid and pointing out the obvious but it's <laughs> it's something that affects obviously all of us you know it affects uh, we can't escape it really you know genetic diseases you if you've got susceptibility to genetic diseases you can't really easily escape that at the minute yeah. so it is a very social thing even though it is very sciencey, you can't really avoid the social side of things. That's why we've got all the like genetics counsellors and that sort of thing, I guess, isn't it? You you can't study it without thinking of all the social impacts. I yeah. I don't think anyway. Absolutely, and I think it can it can almost be, obviously, depending on what you're looking at, um, 
but it can almost be dangerous to not think about yeah um yeah definitely. The, the implications of that research yeah definitely I would agree and I think like a lot more research I'd say maybe in like yeah the last 10 years is starting to value I guess um social science because without sounding controversial again I think a lot of biologists um tend to uh what's, <laughs> what's the word about <laughs> sounding horrible um not listen to social scientists and sort of discount it as a science but I think it's yeah. nice that in like the last 10 years I think that a lot of good biologists are starting to realize that it does play a really big part um absolutely and it goes both ways as well I think um a lot of social scientists as well can be a bit um, wary of genetic research I remember mm. once actually I we all had to present for five minutes our research at uh one of the sock beam meetups and okay. I presented my um I gave like a brief description of my research and the question that came to me at the end was oh so do you think that what you're doing could be used for evil um, oh yeah gosh <laughs> yeah exactly it's a deep question isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah they didn't even know how to answer it but yeah so I'm just saying it, it goes both ways but I think yeah. interdisciplinary research is really kind of where research in general is going yeah even if you look yeah, at the, the genomics lab at Essex like so many of us are between you know the maths yeah. department and, yeah and things like that so yeah definitely and I think as well um a lot of biologists really love focusing their work on humans don't they uh, without mm -hmm. sounding too generalized everyone has their own areas of research but mm -hmm. a lot of people do love human research and you can't do human research without considering the social impacts really because mm -hmm. social we, exactly exactly so yeah I think it's it's quite a narrow-minded view to focus on one or the other yeah I, I agree with that I really do agree with that I didn't want to be the one to say it but um <laughs> you've done it but yeah I, yeah, I do really agree sorry with that if I offended anyone <laughs> <laughs> no I think I think the thing is um because I think when I was starting this and we were all writing up our project proposals, I think we were all quite um, worried because it seemed like suddenly we didn't just have to be an expert in one field, we had to be an expert mm -hmm. in two. And yeah, one, yeah. one thing that uh, one of the PIs told us on the programme, which I found really useful, was that you don't have to be an expert in every field. You, um, it's the whole point of the program is so that you can be an expert within your own field, but have the yeah. kind of communication skills and openness to yeah. talk, discuss with people in other fields, yeah. other fields. Yeah. All around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I think that's how you like improve your own research and like have a more comprehensive um, view to your research. Interdisciplinary research is, it's definitely, made my research a lot more comprehensive and just better in general I think yeah yeah absolutely Definitely. me too yeah um okay so um I feel like we've we've sort of mentioned you know you're looking into epigenetic biomarkers of um smoking could you sort of give like a really brief description of what is epigenetics um just for anyone who's not heard of the term before or they maybe have heard of it and they're not quite sure what it is yeah um so 
I think obviously a lot of people know genetics, right? It's this um, combination of A's, T's, and G's. You get Four letters of the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> um, epigenetics. So, epi, I learned, is a Greek prefix that means on top of. So, epigenetics it, um, basically involves changes to gene expression. So, how genes are switched on and off how genes are coded um, but these changes don't actually change that DNA sequence mm -hmm. so what they do is they epigenetic modifications they change a phenotype of process without actually changing the genotype right um, and these epigenetic processes they impact how um, cells read our genes uh, mm -hmm. basically and it involves I suppose three three main ones so DNA methylation which I'm looking at histone modifications and um, also microRNAs. Okay well my question was just going to be obviously because you told us the three kind of main parts of epigenetics I guess three main factors and you're looking at DNA methylation so I was going to say can you expand on that a little bit what is DNA methylation? And how does it affect genes? Yeah, so DNA methylation is um, a biological process by which a methyl group um, is added to a DNA molecule. And by doing that, it in turn changes the activity of that DNA segment that it was added to. And okay. so as a general rule of thumb, if this DNA methylation occurs in a promoter, then DNA methylation typically acts to repress that gene's exp um, expression and transcription. Um, however, the, that's not always the case, and obviously the process is still being understood. Yes. And so generally, DNA methylation, it, what it's doing is it's changing the structure of um, your chromatin. So, uh, the substance of you know DNA and proteins mm -hmm. that you see in chromosomes, it changes that structure. And that in turn influences how well or not DNA can be read by okay. things like transcription factors. Okay, thank you. Okay, so just kind of, I guess we're going over some um, basic terms really before we start talking a little bit more. You're looking at biomarkers um, yeah. of smoking status. Can you explain what a biomarker is? Because it's definitely something that I I had to look up before kind of speaking to you today. So can you explain what that is to people that don't know? Yeah, um, biomarker is just short for biological marker and it's, it's basically just some kind of measure which can tell you about um, some kind of biological state. So mm -hmm. it can be a characteristic, a gene, a molecule that you can objectively measure and then in doing that that measurement can indicate and give you some kind of idea about some physiological or pathogenic process that is happening yeah um, right so could it be like something that's potentially used perhaps in you know like early um detection of cancer for example Yes, definitely. Um, I think actually 
or DNA methylation has been linked to things like cancer mm-hmm. and generally a, a kind of global decrease in DNA methylation mm-hmm. increases your chance of of cancers I believe okay. um so yeah a biomarker it's just some kind of objective measure that tells you about something biological that is going on in that system yeah mm-hmm. okay so before I'd come across that term before and this is probably gonna if my supervisor Ben hears this he'll probably want to disown me <laughs> um but to start with I thought that maybe it was like something that you added yourself like to people you know mm-hmm. added to oh. the genes like an art- an artificial tag or something for specific things you know maybe like tagging tagging genes or parts of the DNA I didn't realize it was like a, a naturally occurring in the body kind of yeah no I don't think that's yeah. a stupid question I think like terms like biomarkers are perhaps things that you know in your undergraduate degree you didn't come across and if you don't no. happen to study them in postgraduate or onwards then it's not a stupid question okay. um <laughs> so I think like biomarkers if we're thinking about in terms of DNA methylation would be for example Alex correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> but um we could sort of like measure um, DNA methylation levels, I guess, at particular areas of the genome. And if we know that um, methylation, if, if methylation levels are really high or really low at particular areas of the genome, we could sort of measure those areas in different people. And that would sort of indicate maybe um, development of particular disease or phenotype like Alex is that correct Alex yeah yeah I think that's on does that make sense Ellie yeah definitely thank you yeah um so what do you know what kind of things we have biomarkers for at the moment so what sort of things we can like measure using um DNA methylation currently well there are some brilliant um age predictors Mm -hmm. um using DNA methylation and some people have even taken that a step further um, to kind of use these age predictors as a measure of accelerated aging. Um, you can obviously measure smoking, mm-hmm. um, alcohol use, um, BMI. Okay. Uh, there's quite a few these days. Yeah. There's yeah. really been a boom. Yeah, definitely. So if there's already some sort of biomarkers um, based off of smoking, what is sort of your, the motivations behind your project? Is there sort of some controversy around the, the smoking biomarkers using DNA methylation? Or I think, well, to be honest, I started doing these um, epigenetic biomarkers of smoking quite a few years ago now. Okay. And this kind of research move so fast so when I was first doing this it was all very new and there weren't actually many biomarkers and the ones that were out and being used were based on these 450k arrays Um, and the data that I was using which are called epic arrays they they measure DNA methylation at kind of double the amount of sites so that was my kind of original contribution to this and um, so sorry just to just to clarify because obviously me and me and Alex sort of maybe use the terms 450k array and epic array yeah. quite often yeah but um if you could just quickly explain perhaps what are what are these 450 and epic arrays yeah so these um they're 
basically the way that we're measuring uh, DNA methylation in these participants are by using these this uh, microarray technology. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it uses these probes that measure the amount of methylated or unmethylated signal at various different locations across mm-hmm. the genome, at CPG sites across the genome, which is where DNA methylation typically occurs. And so, yeah, so these microarrays measure DNA methylation at lots and lots and lots of different sites. And that technology is only getting better and better. So mm-hmm. the first um, epigenetic biomarkers of smoking that were coming out were using microarrays that measured DNA methylation at 450,000 sites ish. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then a few years ago, they released a new one which measures it at 850,000 sites. Yeah. And obviously, the more sites that you can measure, the better that your uh, biomarkers are going to be. In yeah. yeah. And I think one of the, the cool things about the EPIC array is it like, measures methylation at a lot more um, distal regulatory elements, so things like enhancers and stuff, mm-hmm. which the 450K um didn't so so the, the 450k is obviously the one that measured at 450,000 and yeah. then the epic is the epic is 850,000 <laughs> so um sort of double but yeah I think Not they quite. sort of expanded it to be looking into so we're measuring methylation at um enhancers and things like that so um a lot more I guess novel findings can come out of using the epic array over the 450k okay that's really interesting so it's yeah. using micro arrays to look at the, the methylation rather than just like normal gene expression. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's just measuring methylation at these particular sites in the genome. And I guess this is how we sort of build these um, biomarkers because we can sort of look across thousands of different people or however many people you're looking at. And yeah. perhaps you'll see that, for example, Alex will speak about this, but you might see that um, all of the smokers have... Um, elevated methylation levels at particular sites of the genome and that's how you would sort of build your biomarker yes yeah so so that's the the kind of data that you use and then you um uh run effectively what you're doing is you're running thousands and thousands of linear models um or logistic models um uh, to see if there are differences in DNA methylation measured at each of these sites between, yeah. you know, across your phenotype of interest, which in this mm-hmm. case was smoking. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. No, so cool. um... I guess, yeah, the very, the, the broadest question is how does smoking affect DNA methylation? So obviously using smoking as a biomarker, what what effect does it have on DNA methylation? Does it increase it, decrease it? Mm-hmm. Any particular areas in, of interest? So um, the strongest, um, so generally speaking, um, you typically see a lot more of a decrease in DNA methylation okay. in smokers compared to non-smokers. So you see hypo methylation mm-hmm. okay. that occurs at certain sites and the strongest effect sizes so the strongest differences between smokers and non-smokers that you see are located in sites um 
like that are involved in uh, the cleanup of toxins. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's happening effectively is that these chemicals in, that you find in cigarette smoke um, are in one way or another reducing DNA methylation at sites such as AHRR. Mm-hmm. That's the strongest site that you'll see associated with smoking. So that codes for the aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor. Okay. And basically things that you, pollutants that you find in cigarette smoke, mm-hmm. uh, such as uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't just see them in cigarette smoke. You also see them in things like air traffic pollution. And I think, yeah. obviously, Liv yeah. will know more about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so what's happening is these uh, toxins that you see in chemical smoke are reducing DNA methylation at AHRR. Um, and what that does is it prevents these toxins acting um, on the AHR signaling cascade. So a lot of to- uh, the toxins like toxins like PAHs um, affect your biology um, through this AHR signal cascade. Mm-hmm. So so by reducing DNA methylation at that site, you're you're blocking blocking that. So your DNA methylation is in a way preventing the harm that these toxins can do. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so if the like decrease in methylation, has anyone sort of, or have you maybe looked into, so AHRR is a gene, isn't it? Yeah. So has there been sort of any work looking into where these sites are located within that gene? So are they located in the promoter, for example? Yes. So actually they're all across the, they're all across the gene but the majority of oh okay so it's not just one site or yeah that's a good point actually because um the position of the cpg uh where dna methylation is changing what um will influence what happens to that gene so typically if if dna methylation is occurring in a promoter then it will repress that gene Mm -hmm. but sometimes if it happens elsewhere in the gene it doesn't necessarily repress it as much so a lot of these signals are in the gene promoter of AHRR Um, okay but actually it's only a really there's thousands and thousands of significant differences in DNA methylation and obviously AHRR is just one of many but it's the strongest is the methylation in this gene I guess protecting smokers more so is it making them use this um i guess protection machinery more or is it are they using it less does that make sense yeah so i worded that really badly but (laughs) is it more of like a protection is it more of a protective mechanism Um, yeah yeah so so dna methylation is decreasing in the at this gene so then because dna methylation is decreasing there that means the gene is being expressed more. Uh, yeah, decrease in DNA methylation is increasing AHRR um, transcription. So more and more of this protein is being produced, which is blocking off that AHR signal. Yeah. And 
do we know like does that have any downstream effect on any other um biological pathways um like how i guess does this pathway protect people or help deal with the toxins from cigarette smoke yeah um because uh, when you're exposed to toxins like pahs the reason that they do harm to your kind of biology is because it's acting through the signaling cascade so DNA mutilation is is stopping that. AHRR is the repressor of the signaling cascade. So when you're producing more AHRR, it's competing with AH. Um, it's competing with sorry A ARNT. Okay. Which makes the signaling cascade happen. I, I can't think of activates. Those. Activates, okay. yeah. <laughs> so so AHR and ARNT are, are both competing competing to to bind and uh, work on this AHRR sig signal. So, so do they right. have the same binding site? Um, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, I don't know too much about um, mm -hmm. the AHRR signaling pathway. So, yeah. But they have, they have opposing about... effects. Yeah. So AHRR yeah. is stopping that cascade happening and ARNT is producing that cascade. Right. Okay. Um, so if AHRR represses this um, signaling pathway, mm -hmm. I guess, what does the signaling pathway do? And how does the repression of this pathway help people deal with the toxins of cigarette smoke? Because in my head, I would have thought that AH, if it's, um, I guess, methylation in this gene protects smokers, I would have thought that perhaps AHRR turned on this pathway to help deal with um, the toxins of cigarette smoke. Oh, I feel yeah, like you both are pretty confused. Does that make sense? No, no, no. I, yeah. I get what you mean. It You would expect it to. Yeah, to so maybe work I'm thinking way. of this. Maybe I'm assuming that this pathway is a protective pathway, but is that. No, not no, no. So the pathway uh, uh, does damage. So. Okay. So the AHR pathway is activated by these toxins okay so when sense. you so the toxins act through this pathway okay right. but when that, you that makes have, sense but when you have more ahrr they're not they can be they're competing for they're obviously ligands mm -hmm. um, so so poly so pahs are a ligand for this ahr pathway right and, but so when you've got more of the repressor available these toxins aren't able to bind you know and activate mm -hmm. ahrr yeah ahr sorry um so kind of um looking at uh your paper that we read through the other day uh you had written in there that there are some kind of limitations of other biomarkers of smoking such as cottonine i think uh -huh. Can you kind of explain that sort of thing, why that's not a good biomarker and why this methylation is a better biomarker? Yeah. Um, so cottonine um, has been used as a biomarker of smoking for a really long time. Yeah. But the problem with it is that it has a half-life of about a day. So basically okay. it, it degrades really quickly. So right. if you're using cottonine levels, as a measure of smoking, you'll you'll it'll, you'll only know 
if they've smoked in the last few days. Right. Um, okay. It doesn't actually reflect anything. It can't, it's not able to reflect any kind of smoking that occurs before then. Okay. But, with, but with these DNA methylation-based biomarkers, you could, you could almost predict smoking like up to 30 years ago. Right. Wow, okay. Um, so that's the benefit of using these instead. And I guess like, I mean, we know that, for example, if, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but say I was smoking from when I was 10 to 20, let's hope no one is smoking at 10 years old, but let's say I was. <laughs> Some people... I- that's true some people do (laughs) um but yeah so let's say I was smoking from I don't know yeah 10 to 20 years old um we know that that could still have an effect on my health when I was 40 so I guess biomarkers which can I guess account for this smoking that occurred 20 years ago Mm -hmm. are a lot better yeah definitely because it gives you more information about a person's smoking history rather mm. than just if they smoked yesterday for example and I guess maybe social smokers as well people I know that phrase maybe there's a bit of like controversy around that like if you're a social smoker you are a, you are a smoker you know you yeah. know people use it as an excuse I guess um or maybe 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 not so much I don't know but say you only smoke once a week mm-hmm. that cottonine biomarker may not necessarily then be present if you were using it at the like after six days even though you had smoked a week ago and you're going to smoke again on Friday night but you got tested on Thursday yeah equally I guess if for example I went out on the Friday and I had one cigarette and it was the only cigarette I had all week and then the next day that was maybe picked up and yeah exactly I guess that has implications on um how people would perceive my smoking history I guess yeah yeah probably wouldn't be a true reflection on how often and how much I actually do smoke yeah or or someone could smoke two packs on a Friday and nothing for the rest of the week one person could smoke one a day for a whole week yeah absolutely their consumption is going to be vastly different but cottonine would show that up differently would I be correct it depends when um it was measured I suppose um but you're just gonna I suppose just gonna look like a smoker aren't you yeah if if you smoked yesterday whether that was the only cigarette you smoked for a month yeah or you smoke actually loads and i think cottonine is is sensitive to dosage but okay okay um but it degrades so quickly is the issue yeah no that makes sense um and just thinking about like i guess real world applications of these smoking biomarkers are they used um who are they used by and what like what are they actually currently used for like why so these are is is the cottonine one is it a blood biomarker is it you know from a blood sample or no i think it's just saliva oh okay so okay i'd have to check but i believe okay so So what are they like actually used for like who uses them and i guess what would be the real world applications of a smoking biomarker i think typically um, a lot of this is used by epidemiologists okay. and obviously they're interested in um, looking at the process of disease um, mm-hmm. and how that occurs. So if you've got these objective measures mm-hmm. of smoking, you can kind of better look at how smoking 
influences things like cardiovascular disease, for example. Yeah. Right. Danny, so this is just... more of a, sorry. Yeah, no, just, yeah, just in case, and, and instead of asking somebody. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is more of, I guess, a, um, this is more useful for researchers rather than perhaps um, GPs or, um, you know, well, people who work in hospitals. Because obviously, like, if you had a, a cancer biomarker, for example, if you knew that, I guess, um, cancer, a particular type of cancer ran in your family, you might go and get, I guess, screened for that. Mm -hmm. or maybe tested but like smoking is used perhaps more in research or smoking biomarkers are used perhaps more in research yeah I think they are but it can be used by your GP I think mm -hmm. I could I could see the uses there because obviously smoking is linked to higher risks of all these different diseases yeah. though um it would give the doctor a better indicator of your health yes. behaviors yeah yeah and so I'm probably going to sound like it's, this is probably going to be similar to that question that you got at that conference but <laughs> how ethical do you think this is because obviously like so when you sign up for or you know when you're like signing up to a, a new GP surgery you always sort of get asked and it is self-reported on your smoking status and your smoking history so how ethical do you think it is I guess to actually use these biomarkers it, it is worrying in a way because you can imagine some far time in the future mm -hmm. that you have to get life insurance, for example. And yeah. suddenly, yeah. because you have all of these bi um, epigenetic biomarkers available now, yeah. um, suddenly these life insurance companies are asking you to give a blood sample. Right. And then yeah. they take this I didn't think about that, yeah. And suddenly they know your BMI, your age, your... Yeah. Um, how much you smoke how much you drink mm. all of these different factors about you um from you not even telling them yeah you yeah. choosing to disclose it yeah but it's a gdpr nightmare ex yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah it is worrying but i think obviously a we're really far off of doing that yeah and what, yeah. I, and what i hope will happen in the coming years is that we'll we will look a bit more into that into the ethics of doing this kind of thing yeah because yeah. because um obviously we're saying that these biomarkers are objective but there is a question to how objective they are because these biomarkers themselves are being created and based off of self-reported data yeah um so and yeah, obviously self-reported data um is highly linked to these um socioeconomic factors yeah um, so that's a hard question for me to answer yeah um, honestly i think i think hopefully the the usefulness and utility of these biomarkers in preventing smoking related diseases outweigh yeah. the potential harm that they could do but um i do think this kind of thing has to be very heavily monitored because definitely yeah um our data whether it's our social data or biological data is our own and it's yeah. it's sensitive material so mm -hmm. yeah i don't know how to answer yeah, it's that definitely a, like tricky 
situation and just to sort of like clear up something that you just mentioned you mentioned about obviously I guess perhaps the reliability of these biomarkers when they are based off of self-reported data so Mm -hmm. if you could just sort of just really briefly explain I guess how you use this self-reported data in your um, development of these biomarkers yeah so recently I I have got a bit more into that because um how good your epigenetic biomarkers are are going to be um completely reliant on how good the data the self-reported data right because you were sort of so the data that you have and you're basing or developing these biomarkers from is self-reported data so in other words you will sort of take um some survey data and um look at how people have self-reported their smoking status and their smoking history and I guess the question is then how are how reliable is the biomarker because how reliable is the self-reported data because we know that some people will incorrectly report their smoking status. So originally yeah when I was doing these epigenetic biomarkers I was just doing kind of cross-sectional analyses so I was just looking at what they reported their smoking to be at one time. Yeah. just before their bloods were collected. But you're right, so this is a huge question. So if you're just asking somebody once, how reliable is that? Mm -hmm. But the thing with my research is I'm lucky lucky enough to be using data from Understanding Society. Yeah. So Understanding Society is the UK household longitudinal uh, survey. Mm -hmm. So it's this massive study um, and they follow thousands and thousands of, of people, households, the whole household, across a really long period of time. So what I was yeah. able to do was, instead of just looking at how they self-reported their smoking then, I was able to go back 11 years mm-hmm. well, yeah. and, and see what they were saying about their smoking back then. And it actually does happen. So there's, I think, I can't remember the exact number, but there were a few participants in 2010 Mm -hmm. said that they had never smoked. Mm -hmm. And then when you go back and look at what they said in 1999, they said that they didn't smoke. Yeah. You know, so by by utilising longitudinal data, Mm -hmm. I think you can really improve the reliability of your self-reported. And yeah. I think going back to the, the thing we were discussing about um, cottonine, um, I guess this is a really like unique and really cool aspect of your research is that you're able to, like we said, really take into account the smoking status and the smoking history, which we know has an impact on phenotype and disease. Yes, yeah. exactly. And-, and obviously the reliability of the data, but uh, other factors influence how reliable that data is so one thing that I thought was quite interesting that I was looking at was I was I was basically comparing the smoking status that they were predicted from DNA methylation Mm -hmm. to uh, their self-reported data and Mm -hmm. I was comparing um, people who were matched so who had the same smoking status whether you measured it from epigenetics or Mm self-report or um, mismatched yeah so what happened what interestingly what seems to happen is that those who were mismatched um, 
tended to be more likely to have some type of qualification. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that kind of uh, breeds into the fact that smoking is quite stigmatized and it is very social. Mm. So you're um, in kind of more educated social groups uh, with more uh, qualifications. Yeah. Then you're less likely uh to I suppose honestly report your smoking sickness I think as well so I actually do the understanding society survey have done ever since I can remember yeah and yeah yeah and my and my family do as well my parents and I remember when I was really little sort of five six years old we used to have this lady called Rosemary come around every year She's a lovely lady. It used to be really fun. <laughs> um, and she would do the survey, I guess, on like pen and paper. Mm-hmm. And me and my mum and my dad would all be in the room and they'd go through and do all of us. Um, and now it's kind of evolved. You just do it online mm-hmm. and an online survey rather than. You're much more likely to disclose everyone. things yeah. that you so wouldn't think, normally disclose in front of other people. Definitely. Exactly. So I think that's a kind of important thing That's to really remember as well yeah, yeah. And, and and the way this understand society is set up is that you can look at that yeah if, if you wanted to and actually I think as well um kind of biomarkers that are based off of slightly older data um uh, in terms of smoking histories can be a bit more accurate as well mm-hmm. yeah um because obviously like I've I've said smoking is everybody knows smoking is bad for you now and yeah um, they didn't used to yeah and mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's obviously people are just smoking less and less and less and with that yeah. it's kind of people are judging it a little bit more as well yeah yeah, yeah I guess it's a it's almost a, f- a fashion trend isn't it you know to start with it was like it was good to smoke and it was not only cool but maybe even potentially perceived to be good for you and yeah. then obviously yeah. it was really really bad for you and then it was cool and bad for you and then it's like not cool and, and now bad it's, for you. it's very unfashionable now yeah, yeah exactly yeah, I think so if you like not very not very fashionable at all guys exactly no. and wouldn't and smoke on a first date no because you would think that I wouldn't want to put them off so I wouldn't yeah, exactly smoke. exactly and you know you go on <laughs> you go on uh <laughs> know why I'm gonna say this but like you go on hinge and people are always like yeah no I don't smoke I don't smoke me yeah, yeah. in person and they do eventually smoke but they don't like yeah, to admit it says, it. exactly you shouldn't you date don't. me if you smoke yeah <laughs> I've seen that a couple of times <laughs> so, so yeah lots of things um influence um the reliability of yeah self-reporting yeah. things like smoking yeah maybe you could just run through some of the findings of your research so far yeah because you looked at smokers non-smokers and previous smokers didn't you yeah so I guess yeah you've made like a really great effort to I guess dissect all of this smoking history and I guess that's what's really unique about your research compared to other biomarkers so I'd be really interested in what kind of things you found out there yeah um so in terms of comparing um smoking status groups um what you tend to see are uh, the biggest effects, biggest differences between current smokers and those who have never smoked. Um, 
so in terms of uh, methylation at AHRR, for example, mm-hmm. um, current smokers, DNA methylation is really low at AHRR, whereas it's much higher in never smokers. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that happens there is that um, there's not as much difference between ex-smokers and non-smokers in terms of DNA methylation. So what that suggests is that once a person has quit smoking, Mm -hmm. that these changes to DNA methylation start to decay, but they may actually never fully return to non-smoker levels. Right. So a a certain amount of reversal, but not full. So how do you think that sort of fits with, fits in with the idea that, you know, if you like just go back to what I said earlier about if I'm if I smoke from when I'm 10 to 20, how that might affect my health when I'm 40. Does that perhaps suggest that maybe perhaps DNA methylation is more of a short term response to cigarette exposure? And maybe there's something else going on that causes these long term health effects. Um, I, I think no, because I think in a way that it. Um, the effects of smoking and DNA methylation are really long lasting, which is why sometimes even after 30 years, you still see differences between an ex-smoker and a non-smoker. Oh, okay. So even those, I guess, small differences between the ex and um, never smokers is still enough to um, cause disease, I guess, later on in in life. Yes. Okay. Um, Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and to be honest, why these signals last so long is mm-hmm. under debate. It's not mm-hmm. really fully understood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Something that really interested me about uh, your paper was that the number of cigarettes per day didn't really have a very strong impact on um, kind of estimates of of smoking from this DNA methylation data. So. I kind of took from that that smoking at all, like I, either whether you you've ever smoked or never smoked, is more important in terms of impacting health than whether you smoke loads or smoke not very many. Would you <laughs> agree, disagree with that, or is it just kind of impossible to tell um, at the minute? Well, I don't think anything's um, for certain. Yeah, but um. I think that in a way that kind of is what it's saying. So in terms of DNA methylation, Mm. um, I think just smoking, no matter really how much you smoke, causes these drastic changes in DNA methylation. And and basically there's actually actually something that my um, supervisor was talking about um, that occurs with DNA methylation at CPG sites where sometimes there's an extent to which you can change DNA methylation at, at, um, at, at some kind of site. So there's this thing called saturation. So, so maybe perhaps, yeah. Um, just smoking anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, changes, decreases AHRR methylation, for example, mm-hmm. as much as it possibly can. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So any extra amount, that you smoke yeah isn't gonna isn't isn't gonna change it anymore because it's already at that maximum point of change right Mm -hmm. 
if that yeah. right sense. so quite similar to you know and remember when you were in school and you learned about I guess substrate substrate concentration on um enzyme yeah. activity quite similar to that yeah, yeah I, th- I think so um, point. yeah possibly mm-hmm. um and so it's kind of almost potentially like like a binary effect you know it's, it's not a it's not a scale it's either like yes or no sometimes for some sites I'm not going to say yeah. that for all of the sites yeah of, of course yeah but, yeah but for AHRR maybe it is that um yeah. and and I think that kind of fits into some other papers so that um so there's this uh uh Philibert et al mm-hmm. um they were kind of the first uh, their group was kind of one of the first to be making these epigenetic biomarkers of smoking and what they found was that um you can tell if somebody has smoked or not from DNA methylation, even in people who have smoked like half a pack year, which is a, oh, right. which is okay. a very little amount. So yeah. yeah, I think that maybe is what that's suggesting. Right, that's really interesting. Yeah, and then something else me and Ellie were quite interested in is that you, you spoke about in the paper about um, that for, to sort of measure, I guess, um, smoking status in, current smokers you only really need a few um cpg methylation sites is that because of that really huge difference um that you see for example in the ahrr gene yes i think so yeah because mm-hmm. some epigenetic biomarkers have just used that one site or okay. or, or a few sites within that one gene mm-hmm. to classify smoking yeah that makes or, sense um so yeah it's really easy to tell from that perspective mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it, like sorry go ahead no I was just gonna say but in terms of ex-smoking um it's and not smoking it's a little bit harder to to, to tell. tell the difference to distinguish yeah. the two just, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um I guess we've like we've mainly spoke about AHRR because obviously that is sort of the biggest signal but how many or like have there been any other other genes associated um with smoking status and um has there been anything other than genes, perhaps maybe methylation at particular enhancers or um, open sea regions or anything like that? Mm-hmm. There, there are lots of thousands of genes really have been implicated to be, mm-hmm. um, to have different methylation levels between smokers and non-smokers. Um, um, so there's lots possibly related to inflammation, for example. Um, yeah. Uh, there's something that happens in smokers which is called a chronic leukocytosis so where um, in smokers they have increased levels of white blood cells Mm -hmm. and in terms of um, kind of genetic location yeah not all of the cpg sites are located within genes Mm -hmm. or uh, genes that code for proteins so you also see a lot of these sites um located in, in intergenic regions mm-hmm. um, and there's some suggestion that what might occur there is that um, when you're decreasing DNA methylation at these sites in intergenic regions um, it's uh, kind of increasing the instability of your genome and the mm-hmm. chromatin structure so right. So maybe in transposable elements or yeah like that. yeah yeah exactly and when that happens um uh you obviously have increased risk of things yeah. like cancers and diseases mm. yeah 
yeah wow definitely. that's really interesting so to sort of like finish up perhaps you could maybe sum up I guess maybe some of your main findings and some of the main takeaway messages of your of your research yeah um so I think in this particular paper that I'm hoping to get published soon um the main findings are that uh yes it's there's a um very obvious um epigenetic differences that you see in smokers and it's harder to predict ex-smoking mm-hmm. um and I also see that in my um and that's just within smoking status but when you start looking at smoking histories like duration and cessation you also see that so um you tend to explain a lot more variance in smoking duration within these biomarkers than you do in cessation because Mm, these signals decay once a person has quit Mm -hmm. and um, another thing that I think I'm trying to convey in this paper is that uh, the data that you're using to build these biomarkers is important and that uh, the biomarkers of smoking may actually be better if you're using uh, longitudinal data where you can you can get a better look at a person's smoking history across their life course and there's you know smoking is is quite social and influenced by a lot of other factors um yeah health related factors that maybe need to be taken into consideration too yeah yeah that was a really great summary um thank you i've really enjoyed today's conversation and i think um you're a really like well-rounded research I think your your research is really cool I'm really excited for it to come out and um, yeah definitely I think we've had some really great discussions about um how important biosocial research is and yeah I've really enjoyed it oh great so just to just to close close the chat um are you happy for people to contact you if they have any questions and if so how (laughs) for Um, example twitter uh email what's your preferred method of question time yeah, email me if you wanna if you wanna know more. And um thank you for having me. It's been really fun. No, it's great. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so much. Virtual, for... um, as always, we'll put we'll just put Alex's email in the episode description so people can easily yeah. access that there. Thank, thank you very you. much for joining us today. Yeah, and thanks, we will Alex. See you all it on the next so episode yeah. of the Genomics Lab. Genomics Lab. <laughs> <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs>